0: Let us pray. Well oh, Father, we come before you, amazed at your grace, and as we looked into the issue of marriage, we stand amazed at your creation of this institution, the beauty of it, the purpose for it. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified. As we understand more and more of what you meant for your marriage. Father, we ask you now to fill us with your spirit. And give us grace to hear. And to understand. And to obey. And to repent. And to act as we are the blood-bought servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant me grace, Lord to proclaim your truth. Grant us grace, Lord, to conform our lives more to the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. John Piper said, there never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. And we would say amen to that. Our generation sure doesn't have a high view of marriage. And one of the purposes of this conference was to help us focus on marriage, to focus on God's purpose for marriage, and to raise the value and the view of marriage in our eyes. And so that is my goal this morning, as best I can, to help lift up the view of marriage in your eyes and help you have the full understanding—well, let's just admit it, none of us have the full understanding— as better understanding of what we had of what marriage is all about. Throughout the Old Testament, we find pictures or what we call types that point us to something in the future. The word "type" comes from the Greek word "tupos," which means to blow a blow hit or an indentation. So, if you took a hammer and you slammed it into a two by four, and it left an imprint. That would be a type. That would be an indention. That would be a mark representing this. And you knew that this pointed to the hammer. Or you guys who are hunters and you're out in the woods and you come across these prints in the sand. This is a blow. This is an indention, an imprint of you know what. Because you know what the hoof print looks like of a deer or of an elk or something like that. And it points you to the reality So the type always points us to the reality. If you remember the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac and how God called Abraham to take Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and to offer him as a sacrifice. Isaac was a type. He was a type of Christ. He was a picture. He was an imprint of Christ and what would happen. Except in that scenario, he was set free in the real type. Christ died for his people. If you remember in the wilderness, because of the sinfulness of Israel, God sent venomous snakes among them. And many of them were suffering, many were dying. And Moses took a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And he put it in the midst of the, of the encampment. And he told the people, if you'll look to the serpent you'll be healed that bronze serpent the scripture tells us was a type of christ as people look to christ as he was lifted up if you're if you are bitten by this by the snake of sin you can be set free and you can be healed one of the most famous and well-known types in the old testament is the passover if you remember the story God's people had been in Egypt for 400 years and the Egyptians out of fear for the Israelites had had enslaved them and were giving them brutal uh, treatment and God sent Moses to set them free and through a series of plagues the Pharaoh continued to hold the people captive until the last plague and this plague God chose as his 10th plague the destruction of the firstborn child of everyone in the land didn't matter if it was Israelite or Egyptian. Everyone was going to receive the death by the death angel. And we read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. And I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood... Shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God gave a clear picture here that if you'll take a lamb and you'll kill it, and you'll take its blood, and you'll take a branch of hyssop, and you'll you'll dip it in the blood, and put it over the door frame of your house. On the night that my death angel comes to wipe out every firstborn in Egypt, I, because of the blood, will pass over. I will pass over your house. Now we are fortunate to have 2020 hindsight, aren't we? And we realize that Christ chose the lamb and he chose the blood... To paint the picture of what would happen in the future with his son. That Jesus was the Lamb of God. And that his blood on our life would cause God to pass over us in judgment. And we would not receive the wrath of God. But for generations and generations and generations and generations. The people of Israel celebrated the Passover meal. Remembering God's redemption and him setting the people free from their captivity in Egypt. Little knowing, little knowing that that Passover meal had greater significance, that it was a type, that it was pointing to something in the future. And sure enough, in the future comes the Messiah, comes Christ. And Christ sits down with his men On the last supper, the Passover meal, and he adds to and shows the fullness of the Passover feast and explains that the cup is my blood and the bread is my body broken for you. And then he went forward the next day and laid his life out as a sacrifice, receiving the wrath of God. So that all in the past, the present, and the future who looked to Christ and believed that his blood was sufficient and the sacrifice was sufficient that God would pass over his wrath from them. This is our hope. So the Passover feast was swallowed up in the reality Of the coming of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And what we have left of it now is the Lord's Supper. So that type came to a point where it finally ceased to function because it was pointing to something that had finally what? Arrived. I want us to see today that marriage is a type. It has a lot of purposes that God has. To accomplish his kingdom work. But I want us to focus this morning on a couple of things. But one of them is it is a type. He, God, created marriage in the sixth day of creation. And it went for thousands and thousands of years. And it was a blessing to people who had no idea. Of what the type meant. Until Paul sits down in Ephesians 5 and gets out his pen and writes down the fact that the marriage represents Christ and the church. People still benefited from marriage, but they didn't understand the type. They didn't fully understand all that it meant. And so I want us this morning to understand more deeply, what this means for us. First, uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Marriage first point is a creation of God. And it was created through him and it has been created for him and for his glory. If you think marriage is all about you and your bride, you don't have the full picture of marriage. Marriage is God's creation, not man's. And we're going to need to reiterate that over and over again to this culture. We're going to have to explain to them we can't recreate marriage. We can't redefine marriage. It's not in your prerogative to do that. Because God is the one who has established it, it is his institution. It is holy and it has holy purposes. Man didn't come up with marriage. I'm sorry. God clearly came up with marriage and we see that in several points. One, He made them male and female. He could have made them all male. He could have made them all female. He made them male and female. Why? To marry. Because He made the woman and brought her to the man. As you look in Genesis 2, He had Adam count, He had Adam name all the animals and Adam keeps looking for his partner. Where's the one that's like me? There's no one like me. And when he comes to that conclusion, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he took Adam, put him to sleep, took a rib from his side and created woman. Out of man. And he brought her to Adam. And he made this comment, a man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. They had physical intimacy. They were one flesh. It was the first marriage. And God declares to us, as the Pharisees are talking to Jesus about marriage, remember that little situation? And they're trying to ask Jesus, well, Jesus, when's it appropriate to divorce? And Jesus said, it's not been that way from the beginning. Because of the stubbornness of your heart, Moses allowed people to divorce but God's original design was that there would be no divorce. And he made this statement, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So so marriage is God's creation. And he declares, I'm the one who put puts people together. And they are meant to be put together for life. Now, there's lots of purposes for marriage, and we're not going to spend the time today going through that. But let's just talk briefly about those. First of all, marriage provides companionship. It provides help. Adam needed help. Adam was alone. He needed counsel, encouragement. God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply. You can't do that by yourself. God gave him a wife. They might be fruitful and multiply. And what what was God's goal? That the world will be filled with people. Why? Because people, as Genesis 1 tells us, are made in the image of God. He wants His image over the entire planet. And... We're told in John 4 that the Father seeks worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And we know in Revelation, He's going to find, He's going to create worshipers from every people, tongue and tribe and nation on the globe to worship Christ. And so when you have a child, it's not your child. You are the steward of that child, but that child belongs to God for His purposes. He's made in His image. Yes, He does reflect you for better or for worse, as we know. And God's usually pretty gracious to us, amazingly. But it's for his purpose, because they're made in his image. And so we understand, if we don't understand anything else about the abortion issue, we're going to take a little side trip on this just for a second, why are children being killed? Well, the secondary reason is because people are selfish. The primary reason is because Satan hates God's image. That's the reality. Satan hates the image of God and babies are made in the image of God. And he has done this throughout history. Remember Moses and the grand plan that Pharaoh had to kill all the male children to keep Israel from growing. He had the same plan when Jesus was born through Herod, remember? That we would need to kill all the children around Bethlehem to keep this child from becoming king So remember, abortion has a secondary cause. And that's the selfishness and sinfulness and the foolishness and the ignorance of man. But the primary cause is because there's a war going on. And Satan hates God. He hates his image. And he hates us. We need to keep that in mind. Marriage is a place in which we see physical intimacy. It's the only place God has prepared for physical intimacy to take place. It's to be a a place of great joy and pleasure and delight. It's to be a protection against sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul admonishes the Corinthians, listen, get together regularly as husband and wife. The wife owns the husband's body, the husband owns the wife's body, and you're you're to get together regularly to keep yourself... From being tempted, and he says, you can sustain those relations for a brief season for prayer, but then come back quickly so that you are not taken captive by Satan. Marriage produces a home, and the home is where we is the discipling center for children. It's not the only place children are discipled; they're discipled in the church as well, and among other believers. But it's a place where children are expected to be trained up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so marriage has glorious and wonderful purposes. But it's an it's an imprint, it's a picture of the reality of Christ. So marriage is God's creation, not man's. Second, marriage displays Christ's relationship with his church. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Shakespeare said all the world is a stage and all the men and women are merely players. May we take Shakespeare's quote and tweak it a little bit. If the apostle Paul was to write it, he would say it like this. Every marriage is a stage and the husband and wife are merely actors acting out the parts of Christ and his church. When we understand that, we understand the importance of marriages being permanent. And we understand the importance of believers being able to live in right relationship with each other. The husband plays the role of Christ by doing the following. By loving his wife. As Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her, husbands are to love their wife and to sacrifice. To deny themselves For the benefit of their bride. The husbands are to sanctify the wife in the word. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But to help the wife become more like Christ. And third, the husband is to nurture and cherish her. To provide and protect. Both physically and spiritually that's his role why because he's been he's been given the role of playing christ not because he's better than her men you are not christ we have sin we have issues we have idiosyncrasies. So do our wives. And part of this one bond is to help us become more like Christ dealing with our sin and those idiosyncrasies. We'll talk about that a little later. But we're to protect both spiritually and physically and provide both spiritually and physically. The wife gets to play the role of the church. And that's why she comes down to Allen White. Because she has been purified by the blood of Christ. Christ purifies his bride. And so she plays the role of submitting to Christ as the church submits to Christ. She submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And so her roles are submitting, which is self denial, it is respecting. And it is helping. Man needs help. And so they come to help complete each other. Marriage third displays the gospel. The gospel has three parts, justification, sanctification, glorification. And the marriage portrays all three of those. Let's talk about that. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to park there for a little while. Colossians 3. It's right around that same part where he's talking about marriage. Marriage. Verses 12 through 17. Just before he tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives, he makes this comment in verse 12 of chapter 3. This would be good for you to bookmark this passage. Because there are very clear instructions on how we are to live with each other. This goes beyond the marriage boundaries as believers to each other. But it, it definitely is within the context of marriage. He says, Put on then, this is Paul talking to the the Colossian church, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I was incredibly helped this week by Piper's interaction with this passage. But I want us to look at what it says, first of all. It says that we, because we are God's chosen ones, holy ones, and beloved ones, what a great description for us. We're chosen, we're set apart, we're holy, we're loved. He says, because of that, put on these qualities. And he goes into them. What that tells us is, we're not able... That doesn't come with us at creation. It doesn't come with us at birth. Because of the fall of man, we have to, by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit, put on these attributes... These are attributes that come from the very spirit of God and are the result of the gospel and the change it makes in our lives. First of all, we're to put this on toward each other. This is true for all believers that we put this on with each other. That we deal with each other in the following manner. That we have compassionate hearts which produce kindness. Humble hearts that produce meekness and patient hearts that bear with one another and forgive each other just as it's been done with us. So as the result of God doing a work in us and declaring us righteous, we are to pass that on to our brothers and sisters in Christ And more particularly, to pass it on to our spouse. Remember the story of the man who owed 50 denarii? Actually, he didn't. He owed 10,000 talents to the king. Remember the story? And so he came to the king and he fell before the king and he pleaded with the king to forgive his debt. And the king forgave his debt and he left the king's presence, went to a guy who owed him 50 denarii, And grabbed him and shook him by the collar and said, pay me what you owe me. And the man said, I can't. Please be merciful to me. He used the exact same words he used with the king. And the man took him and threw him in jail. And then the king found out about it, you remember? And he found that man and he threw him back in jail. And he said, he will stay there till he pays every bit. In other words, he's not ever leaving. What's that parable teaching, that story teaching? The story's teaching that God has forgiven us the 10,000 talents. God has much higher expectations for us than we have for our spouses. May I say that? However much you think your spouse should do, Christ expects you to do a whole lot more. And yet, by the grace of God, through the gospel, he has chosen to take your debt and nail it to the cross. Praise God. Praise God. That should... Wow. And so, how do we deal with other sinners who owe us debts, who say things that hurt us, who are inconsiderate, or whatever the issue may be? Since we have been given such a great debt, that should translate into what? Our relationship with each other. And particularly with our spouses. And again, I'm delivering the mail. I didn't write the mail. And nor am I at this standard either, just so you'll know. Don't think you had any doubts about that, but just so you know. (laughs) If you do have doubts, ask my wife, but she's pretty gracious to me. So, as a result of the gospel, Declaring us righteous when we're not. But we are because of the blood of Christ. Now we are commanded to put on. Compassion. Humility. Patience. Men you're commanded to put on compassion. Humility and patience to your bride. Brides. You're commanded to put on compassion humility, patience with your husbands. Why? Because of what you've received from Christ. This is not just sterile doctrine that doesn't touch real life. You've been forgiven more than your spouse will ever do against you. And so out of a heart of compassion that doesn't come within you trying harder. It comes from the Spirit of God living in you. Compassion should produce gentleness. It should produce kindness. What is kindness? Webster's 1828. Let's go back to some real definitions. Goodwill, benevolence, That temper or disposition which delights in contributing to the happiness of others. Which is exercised cheerfully in gratifying their wishes, supplying their wants, or alleviating their distresses. That's what compassion does. It it produces kindness. Kindness is ever accomplished in love. So the compassionate heart that we receive from God because of what he's done for us, should be translated to our spouses and everybody else as well. But we're going to focus on the marriage right now, if you'll let me. Okay? Second, humble hearts. Where do we get a humble heart from? Because we've been laid low because of our sin. And we realize that the gift we receive from Christ is not of our own doing in any way, shape, or form. There's not one thing we added to our salvation. It's all of him. Every bit of him. And we're sinful people. We're proud people. And we would never get to God except by the grace of God. So that causes us to be humble because of what he's given to us. And that humility should produce meekness. What's meekness? A softness of temper. Mildness. Men. Gentleness. Forbearance under injuries and provocation. If your heart is humble then you shouldn't be all bent out of shape when somebody injures you with their words or provokes you with their action, especially the one you said you would live with forever. And finally, the grace in the gospel of God changes our hearts to be patient. This means that this carries the idea of long suffering. I never did like that word. Long-suffering. That's what we're called to in marriage. Long-suffering. Patience. And it produces forbearance or endurance. Well, you just don't know my wife or you just don't know my husband. God says, I know I know you. And you're more difficult to deal with than he is or she is. Because I know all of you, your spouse is still figuring you out. endurance, being in something to the point that it 's painful to be in. We had a friend a couple we had a couple friends they got married about the same time we did. They were dear friends, and he had met and married his sweetheart. She was actually a a contestant at a beauty contest, so she was a beautiful girl. And our kids grew up together, and our lives were in the same church for quite a while. And some things began to happen that nobody really saw. Um, But I remember my wife one day went to, to the hair salon where this lady had also went, and he said, have you have you talked to so-and-so lately? And my wife said, well, yeah, I know her all the time. She was well, she, she's saying some interesting things. She's telling me that she's the uh, illegitimate child of JFK and uh, Marilyn Monroe. And that there are FBI agents who are probably outside right now watching the salon. And she had other stories that went on. Got to the point where she was put into an institution for a while. This husband has remained married to her. He's continued to bear up under the situation. By the grace of God, the person he married or who he thought he married wasn't exactly who he thought she was. We have situations where people get married and all of a sudden there's a tragic accident where one person is, has become paralyzed for the rest of their life. Or early in a marriage, all of a sudden somebody has a debilitating disease that cripples them to the point that the other spouse has to carry their load and the other load. Marriage is permanent in the eyes of God. And he calls us by the grace of God to endure. To endure. Whatever it is you're enduring, it's not as much as Christ is enduring to remain connected to you, may I suggest. However much you think it is. You know, I'm reminded of back in World War II, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, they also attacked the island of the Philippines. And there was a battle that went on there on the island of Bataan. And it went on for three months. And the Filipino soldiers and the U.S. soldiers were in the jungle hiding out trying to just maintain a subsistence. They cut off all supplies to them. The enemy did. And they finally surrendered in April. They had already been on half rations, third rations, fourth rations. They were already in desperate situation. And... From the Japanese perspective, they didn't they should have died to maintain their honor. And since they didn't, they had absolute contempt for these soldiers. And so began the Bataan Death March, in which they were marched sixty three miles in the heat of the Philippine, the Filipinos spring and summer. They were not allowed to drink any water. If it, there were artesian wells along the path, people tried to get a drink. They were, they were either bayoneted or they were shot. Anybody who lagged behind was shot or beheaded. The people tried to feed them along the way, tried to feed them food because these men had already been on, on half rations for months. No water. They would take them and have them just sit in the sun for hours. At the end of the death march, 12,000 soldiers were dead of the 72. That is a picture of endurance. For those men, it was just okay, I've got to put one foot in front of the other, I can't look to my left or my right. I have to keep moving. If I don't, I'm dead. The Bible tells us that because of the Holy Spirit within us, you can endure. You can endure your spouse. And whatever comes that way, you can endure that. What God has joined to better let man not put asunder. Christ has declared us righteous. Therefore, we treat our, our spouses with that same declaration. This is not blindness. This is what's necessary to lay the foundation for marriage a foundation of unconditional love. Remember your vows to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. To love and honor and cherish till death do us part. And thereto I pledge you my faithfulness. That's our commitment to each other. That's the commitment of the gospel to you. That's the commitment of Christ to you. For better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness, health, whatever your situation, I, you are mine. You've been rescued by the blood of Christ. And I will not let you go. You are in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. You are in my father's hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. This is the relationship you have with Christ. Here's an application for us men and ladies. To reaffirm our commitment to our marriage. Sometime sometime in the near future here, sit down with your spouse and say, I will never leave you or forsake you no matter what happens. Men, I know wives would love to hear that from you. And wives, I know men, your men would love to hear that from you. Now, if doing this causes you incredible awkwardness, and your marriage is really, I mean, all of our marriages are not perfect. I hear an amen on that somewhere. Okay. But some of us, our marriages are really just a shell. There's nothing really inside. It's just a, what's left is a little bit of a show outside. If that's the case, there's hope in Christ. There's hope. And maybe you don't know what the problem is or you know what the problem is and don't want to fix it or whatever the issue is, but there's hope. And I would encourage you, if your marriage is in that state, for the glory of Christ's name and for the people who look in and see your marriage, go to go to Bob or one of the elders or leaders here and just say, hey, we need help. There's nothing we would love better than to help you Begin to rebuild and restore your marriage to the glory of Christ and for your joy. It can be done if you know Christ because you have the Spirit of God living within you. It can be done. So don't just limp to the end of life with the shell of a marriage. Reach out and get help. Okay? So that's the justification of the gospel. We are in this marriage forever because we've been justified by Christ and we're offering each other unconditional love. Now let's talk about gospel sanctification. We've been put in this marriage to become more like Christ. So let's not get the first part confused with the second part. Some people stop at the first part. I hear no evil. I see no evil. My wife is wonderful. My husband's wonderful. And he's completely a mess or she's a mess. And we just keep chanting this to ourselves. No, Jesus didn't do that with you. He justified you by his shed blood and he planted his Holy Spirit in you with the purpose of making you like Christ. He's in the business of cleanup. He's in the business of making you into the very image of Christ and he now because you said i do get to gently and graciously help each other to deal with our sin and some of our idiosyncrasies to become more like christ that is gospel sanctification ephesians 5:26 So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He's talking about Christ. Christ is the one who has cleansed her and washed her with the word. And his goal is to make us holy and blameless when we come to the wedding feast. That our gowns may be white. Now husbands playing the part of Christ. This thing kind of breaks down a little bit in reality because he is not Christ. He plays the role as best he can by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he is still a man affected by sin. And Ephesians 5.26 is talking about Christ and his church. For sure the husband should wash his wife with the word and take the spiritual lead in his home. No one's, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. But this does not mean that the wife should not take the word to her husband. And should not confront him in his sin. Both partners should have the freedom because we know we're not going to leave each other that we can actually deal with our sin. Because of the affirmation that we've already stated that we're not going to leave. And I'm not bringing up this point about what you do or don't do so that I'm getting ready to leave. So we should have this this atmosphere of acceptance and love built upon the very gospel of Christ that we have unconditional love and now... In gentleness, we can begin to deal with each other. Taking the log out of our own eye first. And then dealing with the the splinter in our spouse's eye. Paul David Tripp, in his book, What Did You Expect? Says this. And I think this is really... I think a problem we have in the church, we've tried to call men to lead and we haven't necessarily dealt with the fact that some men get confused about what it means to be Christ in the church. He says, I am very aware that my anger in the early days of my marriage was rooted in worship. Anger wasn't the core of my problems. No, it was a symptom of a greater problem. I wanted to be sovereign over my life and my marriage, and I was angry that Luella always seemed to be in my way. I had a plan for my life and for hers, and I just wanted her to get on my train and ride. There's a lot of wives who are on a train right now, and they're on a ride, and it's not a good ride Because the man is not being like Christ in the church. He's a little dictator who has taken the commands of God and twisted them all out of socket. And all of us have this tendency and have shown this tendency at some point in our married life. If you haven't, please see me afterwards. I was a pastor and a counselor. Yet I was blind to the fact that God's kingdom had little to do with what went on inside the doors of my own home. Luella was hurt and confused because she would do do what seemed to be best. But I would be upset because what she thought was best did not agree with what I had determined was best. No, I wasn't a man of abusive and malevolent intentions. If you had asked me, I would have told you that I adored Luella, but I had functionally replaced God in my marriage. And because I had, we were headed to disaster. There's a place within marriage for no matter how we're playing this with Christ and the church, we're still brother and sister in Christ. And when a brother is in sin, the sister gently confronts. And when the sister's in sin, the brother should gently confront, looking to himself first. And I have not heard a lot about this. This is the thing we need to deal with. Because the marriage is meant not only just to show unconditional love. It is to begin to help us conform more to the image of Christ. That's its purpose.
1: So, Matthew 18,
0: 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. We all think about that as, oh, that's church discipline. Somebody's over here in a big mess and we're going to go take care of them. This is, this is marriage 101. Wife, your husband is, is in sin and he needs somebody to help him. Husband, your wife is in, and I'm talking about real sin. Not that he didn't do what you wanted him to do, X, whatever, whatever. We're talking sin to be able to confront. And let's talk about this a little bit because here's the reality. We sin every day, don't we? I mean, you could spend your whole marriage just pointing out sin in each other's life. You did it. You did it. You did it. You argued. It was just like. There's a scripture that says love covers over a multitude of sins. And so our marriage needs to be one where we cover over a lot of stuff. But there's times when, when, when we cover over sin and sin kicks the cover off, if you know what I mean. It gets to the point where it just becomes so obvious and so blatant. And we need to have the kind of marriage relationship where we can talk to each other and point out the sin in each other's lives. And that we will be big enough to receive it as from God and at least think and stop and consider it. Unfortunately, what I found true in my own life and true a lot of us is this. When we get confronted, we immediately blame. Go right back to the garden. God comes walking through the garden and he asks asks Adam, why is he concerned about being naked? And he points to Eve. And Eve, he talks to Eve, and Eve points to the serpent. That's, that's, we're kind of hardwired that way, aren't we? Amen? We are. We don't like being told we've done something wrong, that we've sinned. I don't like it. And I'm growing in that area, and I've got a long way to go still in that area. So as brothers and sisters in marriage, we have to be able to, when we hear something from our spouse, know that number one, they love us unconditionally and they're never going to leave us. And number two, that we now have to take that to the word and to God in prayer. I love what Bob said about praying about it and think about it some, and don't just raise your defenses and see if God hasn't put your spouse there to root out sin that nobody else sees. And here's the problem. Sin keeps growing, doesn't it? And if your spouse is not able to root that out in your life gently and graciously, it's going to eventually get to be a big enough tree. Everybody's going to see it. And by that point, it's now not just a little private situation. Now the church and everybody else has to get involved to try to solve the problem. So we need to have this relationship that's sanctifying with our spouses. Galatians 1, 1. Brethren, even if any one of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another with one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is not the venue to unpack all of this in more depth. But I want us to get it out there that we need to be able to talk with each other about our sin. We need to get to the point where we don't blame the other person. And that we have the grace to begin to take an introspective look at ourselves. And begin to let God use our spouses to help us become more sanctified. Okay? So Christ's justifi- justification in the husband and wife allows them to offer unconditional commitment to each other. In this atmosphere of love, they can address the sin and the idiosyncrasies that each possess. And this reflects the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's justification, sanctification. Glorification is pictured in the marriage in sexual Intimacy. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, that he talks about them becoming one flesh, and he tells them this is Christ and the church. So he compares the physical intimacy that we see in marriage to our spiritual union with Christ. And what he's trying to show us here is that the most beautiful thing physically in this world, the most pleasurable thing in this world, is physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. And he says, this is a picture of what it will be like when we are married to our bridegroom. That's exciting. The Bible begins with marriage, day six. And all through the Bible... The story of the Bible is Christ is rescuing his bride. For generations down, he is rescuing his bride. He came to seek and to save the lost. The lost are his bride. He's come to set them free from the captive, from Satan, who has blinded their eyes. And so through the generations, Christ has come. He's laid down his, he's paid the price. He's paid the bride price at the cross for his bride. And he sent his people out to the four corners of the earth to proclaim the gospel that all of those who are his, the holy and elect and chosen, would be brought in because he's preparing a wedding. So the Bible begins with marriage and it ends with a marriage. Jesus told his disciples, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Point four. The earthly marriage will give way to the marriage of Christ and his church at Christ's second coming. Just as the Passover gave way to the actual sacrifice of the Lamb of God at his first coming... In his second coming, this picture of marriage that we have will give way to the marriage of Christ and the church. This is absolutely glorious. Matthew twenty two thirty. 30. Remember the Sadducees were coming to Jesus and they were trying to ask about marriage and, and all these questions. They were trying to trip him up. And Jesus told the Sadducees this. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why is there no marriage in heaven? There is. It's Christ and His church. The picture, the type, will disappear because the real bridegroom has come. Let's read the scripture to encourage our hearts. Revelation 19. Starting in verse 6, here's the Apostle John writing in this incredible vision that he had. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voices of a great multitude, like the roar of a mighty waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down on my feet at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord Of lords. That is our bridegroom. And when he comes. There's going to be a wedding. Of which the very first one. And all of them coming up to that point. Are going to point. The marriage of Christ. To his church. And so as husbands and wives deal with their. Issues. May God give us grace to be humble and to receive the rebuke of our our spouse, and to change. And may we receive the rebuke of each other. For those who are single and married, and everyone, as we deal with each other as a body of Christ, may we all allow God to work in and through all of us, that we will present, we will be presented with to Christ with a white garment, not just because of the blood of Christ but because of the righteousness that he has been building into us by the help of the body and the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We stand amazed at your word and Lord, that we are part of this grand throng of people the invisible church from the beginning of time forward. And many of us are part of a marriage that is a picture pointing to this grand wedding and marriage. Oh, Father, I pray for husbands and wives that you would grant them grace to recommit themselves to their love for each other no matter what because of justification. And that you would give them the grace to bear with and live with each other in an understanding way. And to cover over with love a multitude of imperfections and sin. And yet, Lord, to have the wisdom and the grace to be able to point out sin in each other's lives. That they might become a little more like Jesus. Father, we pray for all of our marriages, that you would take them to a new level that would bring honor and glory to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.